Hello, everyone, and welcome to Untangle, the meditation podcast from Gaia. I'm your host, Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who have devoted their lives to teaching and helping others through meditation. Today's episode will be hosted by a special guest, Emily Fletcher. Emily is the founder of Ziva Meditation and a meditation instructor on Gaim's Meditation Studio app. For this episode, she sat down with Lodro Rinsler. Lodro is a practitioner and teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist lineage and the founder of Mindful Studio in New York City. He's also the author of five books, including The Buddha Walks Into a Bar. He's here to tell us his story. I'm really thrilled to have you join us on the podcast because I have so many questions for you that I selfishly want to know. Um, <laughs> but I'd love for you to just catch us up. Like, give us Lodro in a nutshell. What's been your journey to becoming a five-time author, opening up the first drop-in meditation studio in New York City, um, your journey with Buddhism? Like, I'd just love to know your journey from, like, birth to now. <laughs> okay, just in a nutshell. <laughs> just I love it. Just in 30 seconds Okay. <laughs> well, first off, thanks for having me in. It's nice to do this with you. Um, it's always I always love actually doing stuff like this with friends, which is it's a real pleasure. So thank you. Um, yeah, I was born and raised Buddhist. So my parents became Buddhist when they were in their 20s. And I started meditating at a young age, not because they invited me to do it or taught me or anything. It's just like it was in the air, you know, and I work with a lot of parents now. I'm hearing that from their kids. They're like, oh, you know, I like that my mom meditates because it makes her more relaxed. And then they're more prone to do it. And then later on, when I was in my teenage years, I ran off to the monastery, which basically means like Pema Children has this beautiful abbey out in Nova Scotia, Canada, and my parents said, you know, it's not like you're doing anything this summer. So I was naive and thought, why not? And ran off and shaved my head, took the robes, the whole nine yards. Not surprisingly, came out the other end deeply into meditation. It was like, I'm never going back. I totally see the effects of a full summer of practice. And at the same time, I was like turning 18 and went off to college and did a lot of keg stands. So it was Great. no longer doing the monastic thing. Like yeah. I let my hair grow back out where... Um, layman clothes and things like that. Now, so. did you think, were you under any ideas that maybe you were a monk, that maybe you were meant to leave society and do that full time? Totally. I mean, I really, I did, but then I also was surrounded by people that really thought that. And I was like, I don't have the same passion for it that they do. Mm. Like, I still sit here and fantasize about women a lot. And I was 17 years old and totally was not ready to devote myself to anything. So I said, well, if I still feel like this in 10 years, maybe I could do it. Mm-hmm. What did you study in college? I was a religious studies guy. It was such <laughs> like, a, it was like all of a sudden it's just like meditation. It's a really expensive liberal arts degree that basically meant that I ended up a meditation teacher and like served as the head of a nonprofit meditation place. And when you were doing keg stands at 18 years old in college, did it feel like a bit of a preacher's kid rebellion? Was it like, I have to go away from this and just, or is it doing research, but all the while keeping up your personal practice? It was both. Yeah, it was really... I mean, my personal practice was there. I would go out and do keg stands, and then I would get up the next morning and do, like, from a Tibetan Buddhist point of view, I'd be doing prostrations. And it was, I mean, I can't even imagine my body doing it now. You know, then my body was more resilient and could, like, absorb the alcohol, and then I could do, like, the physical prostrations. Here Now I would be like, I can't even get out of bed. So what is a physical prostration? I mean, it, for prostrations, it's really, like, actually offering your full body and sense of self to... In this case, the lineage. You know, I at that point I'd been studying with Sakyong Lipa Rinpoche, 
for a little bit, and I continue to study with him now. He's my root teacher. So it's actually an act of devotion that we offer all of who we are. And there's some like emptying out of our neurosis and emptying out of our like set sense of who we are and our ego and all of it. Um, so it's a very powerful practice. But at the same time, I was like going hard with partying as a teenager and then going hard as like a meditation practitioner mm-hmm. doing these rigorous meditation practices. So it was a real, it was a weird sense of balance. And I gradually slowed down on the drinking and kept up with the practice and it all evened out in the end. I think this is why we're such good friends. When I was training to be a meditation teacher, I was living in L.A., and I was working in a vodka-tasting freezer in Beverly Hills. So it's like this integration of practical living plus spiritual, and I don't think they have to be separate, and I know that you don't either. Talk to me about this concept of devotion, because I feel like it's something that's pretty foreign to Westerners, and yet it's so prevalent in more Eastern cultures. Yeah. How has devotion played a role in your life? What do you think about the word itself? Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes people shy away from it because it it can be very alienating. And, you know, I think another thing that you and I really share in common is the fact that we want to make meditation accessible to all people. But you throw out a word like devotion, everyone's like, ooh, what's that about? When I think about devotion, I also think about the word faith. And faith, at least in the Buddhist tradition, is really like faith in our own experience, not in something external to us, but like we actually develop faith, confidence in our own awakenment in our own meditative mind and our ability to manifest meditation in our everyday life. So when I think about faith, that's where I go. And then when I get into devotion, it's like, okay, in this case, Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche, who's my teacher, has shown me the way of how to do that. Mm. So I feel a real sense of loyalty and love for him. I mean, it's more about love than loyalty, I would say. Um, because this person's really taught me everything I know. You know, I joke that in like each of the intros of my books, I say, listen, there's two ways I learned. One is I studied at the feet of really good masters like him. And I have a lot of love and appreciation for them. That's really the devotion aspect. And then if there's a mistake to be made in the spiritual path, I've made it and ideally learned from it. So like those are the two sides of it. Mm. You know, it's like we study, we learn from people. I mean, you have a teacher and that you've learned from. And, you know, I imagine that there's some real sense of heart connection there. And then there's, well, how does this play out in my day-to-day life? Like what... We play with it. We play with the teachings that we receive and see how is this actually applicable? How do I develop faith in these teachings based on my own experience? Hmm. What do you feel like is the most valuable lesson or piece of advice or teaching that you've gained from your teacher? Well, there's two things that come to mind. One is he said, you know, if you want to be miserable, think only of yourself. And if you want to be happy, think of others. And there's some element there. And I think we've all had that moment of like getting really lost in our head and it gets really tight and really, we sometimes even get depressed. And the moment that we shift our allegiance, our mental allegiance to thinking of others and trying to be of benefit to them, we feel perky. We actually feel uplifted. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is um, a few years later, he said, you know, it was a private conversation. He just looked at me and said, you know, our whole job is to be helpful to others. That's it. Like, that was the job description that was sort of offered me in this meditation teacher role. It's like, okay, how do I actually help others? And to spin off of something that the Dalai Lama once said, like, if we can't help them, how do we at least not harm them? Mm. And to me, this is, it goes back to this idea of devotion, because even if you're not devoted to a particular teacher or a particular lineage, I think you can still live your life from a place of devotion. And maybe that devotion is to contributing to the greater good yeah. of all that is. And that's why I wanted to open with that notion of faith, because it's like we have to cultivate this inside of us. 
Like, what do we actually feel devotion towards? What is our experience of that? And then we develop faith further. We actually have confidence in our ability to manifest that. So let's put that into a real life example. Let's say outside of your eyes closed meditation practice, which I want to learn about. But let's say you're walking around New York City. You know, there's tourists that are walking slowly. You're late for a podcast appointment or a promotion for your book, or you're hustling, you're working 20 hour days, opening your new studio, and something happens that just throws you off your game. You start to feel some rage, some impatience. You want to do harm, maybe. What do you do in that moment? What's your practice if there is one? Yeah. Well, for me, I feel like there's always like this AA line of like, for the first thing what we do is we acknowledge the problem and then we can do something about it, right? And I've always thought about that. Not that I'm an AA, but my father was and a number of people in my family. And, um, you know, there's this element of, from a Buddhist point of view, three ways that we act out in those moments. We either... Suppress it, tamp it down, ignore the emotional state. We run away from it. We distract ourselves. We take out our phone or we call someone or we go online shopping or whatever like, to distract ourselves. Or we act out in a harmful way. We do that thing of like, well, now I'm angry, so I'm going to snap at the person making my coffee. Mm -hmm. The alternative from a Buddhist point of view is just to see it, just to like rest with the emotion and look at it and investigate it and become curious about it. And curiosity is actually a form of compassion for ourselves. It really is where we actually start to loosen the hold that the emotion has on us. So if we can catch ourselves in that moment and be like, oh, there's something going on, can I look at it? Which is uncomfortable, but ultimately the most effective way for us to work through it. I think this is such an incredible concept. I learned this from you at one of your book signings where you said curiosity is a form of compassion. And that really stuck with me. It planted a seed that's sprouting in a beautiful way. And I think it can be given to others, curiosity about someone else's path. Why is the barista messing up my plan? But we can also be curious about why am I experiencing this right now and acknowledging it, right? Because the only way around is through. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think in that context, I was talking about the, the new book, How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People, and it's more about romantic relationships, right? And, I, I mean, you're married, and um, I think – in any of our long-term relationships, it's been my experience, we have the moment of like, oh, I come home, I see this person at the end of the day. They're that person I know, and they're a set being. Like, the, we know who that person is. And we forget that we're constantly changing, evolving day by day, and that that person is also changing and evolving day by day. So it's more of like a dance. That's not the person we know. That's the person we saw this morning, and they might have changed in some ways. Mm. So to not just assume we know who this person is and like assume that they never do the dishes, assume that... You know, there's certain things that they always do and we never do or whatever is actually a disservice to both of us. So that sense of curiosity, like, who is this person? What is going on with them? What is new? And actually really engaging them from an open heart level. It's, it's, for me, it's a real practice. I notice when I come in and I see my partner, I'm just like exhausted and I don't come from a place of genuine curiosity with like what happened today. It's mm -hmm. Or I actually really lean in and I want to know What's changing with her? Like, what's coming up with her? What's she contemplating? Maybe there's some, like, brand new stuff that's, that's coming up, sitting in the back of her mind that we want to talk through. You know, it's, it's a very different dynamic in a relationship, I think. Mm, yeah, curiosity is a form of compassion. So in the book, How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People, one of the main tenets is that in order to be able to really fully love someone else, you have to first love yourself. And so I would love to hear your perspective on... I think there have been lots of people alive in the world that have fallen in love with someone else, but perhaps doesn't really know how to love themselves. So 
A, do you think that it is a given that you have to be able to love yourself? Or is it the capacity for you to love yourself is the capacity with which you have to love others? Yeah, I think I think that's it. It really is. Like, can we lay the foundation of self-love? And then, you know, I, once again, I, I talk with a lot of parents. And I was thinking today of, like, this meditation student who I work with. And she said, you know, isn't it selfish of me to want to, like, meditate in the morning? Like, that means that my husband has to get the kids up and, and then I join them later. And it was this moment of seeking permission just to take basic care of herself. And my co-author, Megan Watterson, in the book, you know, she uses this term inner bitch radio that we constantly... Inner bitch radio? Yeah, it's like we're constantly like, you jerk, why would you ever do... Look at what inconvenience you are to like your husband and to your kids and like, you're falling down on the job. What sort of mother are you? Like the inner ways that we treat ourselves with self-aggression. Mm-hmm. We all have that. We all have that sense of like putting ourselves down in certain moments or treating ourselves with self-aggression, the fact that we could actually relinquish that is the first step towards us saying, well, maybe I can treat myself with kindness. It's that same thing that we were talking about before. Let's acknowledge the problem and then if we can actually address it and start changing the inner dialogue. So changing the dial ever so slightly to that of kindness, of self-love, then we actually have a real foundation with which we can offer love to others. If we're not taking care of ourselves at all, we're just offering whatever scraps of decency we actually have left. <laughs> and so what would be step one? Let's say you're in a relationship, you're, you're perhaps starting to gauge that maybe my ability to love myself and be compassionate with myself is not as much as I would like for it to be. And I'm noticing that through my relationship. What would be step one? Yeah, I think, I mean, not surprisingly, I'm a big fan of meditation. <laughs> but, you know, you yes, you know, it's, I, I really do believe it's, it's life changing. Because we have to get associ- we have to associate ourselves with like what's coming up in our mind before we start to change that dial away from self aggression. If we don't even notice that we're doing that, it's just going to keep going. Mm-hmm. Meditation is, in some sense, just us becoming familiar with all of what's going on with us. Mm. Some of the wonderful and creative and beautifully potent aspects of who we are, and some of the scary and neurotic parts as well. Mm-hmm. And the more we do that, the more we start to be able to befriend ourselves. And the more we befriend ourselves, the more we start to love ourselves. Mm. And so what style of meditation do you practice? Can you give us a window into your personal practice and then what you do with beginners, people who are just starting out? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I come from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, um, specifically Shambhala Buddhism. And my practice is uh, more of a visualization practice and then some mantra recitation. And it always begins and ends with the practice I offer to everyone, which is calm abiding meditation. Mm. And the element here is just taking a dignified yet relaxed posture, connecting fully with the breath, the natural cycle of the breath in this case, and noticing when you drift off into thought, fantasy, strong emotions, what have you, bringing yourself back over and over again, letting the breath anchor you in the present moment. So bringing yourself back to the breath. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm curious, you know, I come from a Buddhist background, you come from a Vedic background. For me, when I think of meditation practice as a term, I think about people practicing for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. So if you can be present with something as simple as the breath, then you can be present with um, making love with your partner, being in a fight with your partner, difficult family situation, work, whatever. Whatever is coming up for you in your life, you're actually there fully authentically for it. And of course, there's all the science these days around meditation right? Mm-hmm. Better focus, better memory. For me, it's just that. It's like, okay, 
it means I'm showing up more fully authentically for whoever is sitting right in front of me. And that's actually been the most powerful part of the practice for me. Mm, I love that idea because if, if your breath is your tool in the sitting, then your breath is always going to be there for you there. in the waking state. You can't escape it. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, people who might be listening to this, you're breathing right now. So all you're, all you're doing is essentially saying, oh, I'm just going to focus on that over and over again without beating ourselves up so that self-aggression for new meditators, I think, is often a big obstacle. And I w- I'm really curious, I mean, if this is your experience as well, that people think that they should just automatically sit down and be, quote unquote, good at meditation. Mm-hmm. And that means, I actually think I saw some, something that you wrote being like, people think that they should be able to turn off their mind, turn off their thinking, mm-hmm. as opposed to, no, the mind naturally generates thoughts in the same way that the heart is beating. Mm-hmm. Like it just, you can't ask the heart to stop beating, you would die. You can't ask the mind to stop thinking. We can just become familiar with, to go back to that term, all of what's coming up and continue to stay focused on the present moment. Mm. So what do you find is one of the biggest challenges for people learning to meditate? Is there a theme that you notice comes up in the first few weeks that gets people to quit or stop? Well, I do think that there's uh, this culture that we live in of instant gratification. Mm -hmm. Thinking that you should, quote unquote, be good at meditation is a real obstacle, I think. Mm-hmm. And people think, well, I tried it once or twice. It didn't work for me, mm-hmm. which is the rough equivalent of being like, oh, I went to the gym once or twice. I didn't lose 10 pounds. What's wrong? It's The gym doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, this, these things take time. So the fact that it takes time and the effects are so gradual and subtle, I think are really, that's a, that's a big obstacle for people. And so I'd love to hear your take on this then. So the fun, that the foundation of the Vedas is, is, you know, that there's only one thing and we're all it. Mm-hmm. And the basic tenet here is that life is bliss. 24-hour-a-day bliss, that's your birthright, and that everything else is stress. Mm -hmm. And so what we're up to when we meditate is getting rid of that stress in the body, getting rid of that thing, and perhaps this is just a vernacular difference, but getting rid of that addiction or the idea that my happiness lies inside of this ice cream cone, right? So if I get rid of that stress, then perhaps that is the Buddhist take on that as attachment so that I can enjoy it and savor this ice cream for what it is, but not being under the illusion that my happiness lies inside of this ice cream cone. Yeah, that's exactly it. I I mean, I don't want us to get too simplistic. I don't think we are, but I think Mm -hmm. it is strikingly similar. It is that sense. I I mean, the only difference is maybe when you started with we are all one, I would say like you know, we sort of plead agnostic in the Buddhist tradition around we like, what? we sort of plead, I, maybe agnostic isn't the best word, but I think we sort of say, well, you know, when the Buddha was asked, for example, is there a God? It's like, it's not what we need to concern ourselves with. You know, those, it's not like there's solid answers in this. It's really about a ex- path of exploration. I think the more that we do explore though, mm-hmm. the more we are able to just see ourselves for what we are. And mm-hmm. what we are is not, as you said, stressed out neurotic beings from a Buddhist point of view, we're all inherently awake. Mm. So instead of saying we're all one, I would say we're all inherently awake. Mm-hmm. Um, the Buddha, the Tathagata, he means the awakened one. So he was able to wake up to the contents of his own mind and reality overall in a very big way. And the reason we look to the Buddha is because he's an example of a human being like you and me that was able to look through his own suffering and be like, you know what, I can get past this and really wake up and be of benefit to others. So I think that's that's sort of the slight difference, but mm-hmm. a very similar thing in terms of how we actually experience the day-to-day. So I often hear from some of my CEO clients or my fancy pants actor clients, they say, you know, Emily, I know the meditation is good for you. I know that all this science is coming out, but I'm afraid that if I start meditating, I'm going to lose my edge. I'm going to lose my ambition. It's going to take away my drive. What do you say to that? And what's been your experience with ambition and 
inner zen. I love that you called them fancy pants. <laughs> you said that term, like, what, what pants are they wearing? They're so fancy. Um, you know, I, I love this question. I get this question a lot, actually. Like, how do I plan for my life if I'm always present, right? It's a good question. But I think that sort of problem is right up there with like, oh, well, my wallet's too small for my 50s and my diamond shoes are too tight. You know, it's like if if that was your experience, I think you'd even be more able to skillfully see how to take whatever next step might come up. But most of us spend a lot of time lost in our heads. And it's not positive, like productive future planning. It's worry-based thinking. It's like, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? Meditation allows us to cut through some of that, actually remain calm. And then the more present we are in a given situation, the more we start to get an awareness of what's actually going on with us, with others, and how to respond in ways that can actually really produce results. So I think meditation is a very effective way for us to become more productive human beings. And it's not just like the sciences we were talking about before of boosting certain things in the brain. It's literally stopping seeing what's going on, not immediately responding out of a negative place, but actually clearly seeing what's going on, seeing what's being asked of us, and responding in kind. So if we have long-term plans for starting a business, writing a book, whatever it might be, those things will be done much more skillfully if we're actually clear with our intention, our activity, and what we want to bring to fruition. Mm. So in your experience, it's not that the meditation makes you want to wallow around in your bliss all day or makes you a lazy person, (laughs) (laughs) that it actually is giving you more mental acuity to look at the dynamics of what's happening in the right now, which then in turn gives you a more effortless path forward. A spot on. So let's talk about mindful. So it's it's. The most beautiful meditation studio I've ever seen. And I have a meditation studio in New York City. I think you guys have done such an exceptional job. It's it's sexy, it's sleek, it's clean. And I think it's really going to do a great service to this city. You know, the city that never sleeps. We're tired. We need some rest. Yes, it's true. (laughs) You know, at Mindful, it's really just like 30 and 45 minute drop-in classes all day long. And if people have a guided meditation practice that they do on their own that's self-guided, they can come in, drop in, use the space. And it's, we just tried to lower the bar as humanly possible so that anyone who wanted or is even mildly curious or totally hates the idea of meditation, but everyone tells them that they should meditate, Mm -hmm. could try it. Beautiful. And um, we're getting a lot of those people in particular, like serious finance people saying like, oh, everyone keeps saying I need to meditate and developing ulcers. This seems like a safe place to do it. And it's a, you know, very... uh, low cost experience it's everyone's first class is ten dollars and you can do half hour class 45 minute class they all revolve around themes like how to work with emotions how to sleep better how to um calm down how to develop love all of these sorts of things Mm -hmm. so a couple of questions one do you teach people how to meditate at mindful or do you give people a space to come in and experience the practice yeah good question both um We teach about nine classes a day, Mm -hmm. which is a lot. (laughs) It's like a couple in the morning, a couple in the afternoon, a couple in the evening. And it is. It's like very intro meditation instruction, different techniques for different things. You know, the way I would teach something like mindful sleep, so allowing the body to relax before sleep, is very different than um, mindful emotions where we examine what, what an emotion looks like in our body. And at the same time, if someone does have a practice there, we're always welcome to drop in and use our private meditation space which is meant for either one-on-one instruction with teachers or self-guided practice. Talk to me about the most 
radical or exciting transformation that you've seen in someone through meditation? Gosh, that's a really interesting question. You know, I think, yeah, I think this is probably a good story for us to end on. Uh, when I was the director of the Boston Shambhala Center, there was a guy who I knew about before he even showed up. Someone wrote to me and said, hey, listen, I've been doing this prison chaplaincy work. Um, this guy's getting out of jail. He is going to come to the Boston Shambhala Center. Would you make sure to just warmly greet him? And he got there and he introduced himself and I immediately befriended him and I felt quite close to him. And he started doing events there and he had started meditating in jail. What kind of meditation? Just basic, the calm abiding meditation I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. and had really connected to it and started attending more and more events and really feeling like this was a home for him, which is great. And I was really glad to see that. And at a certain point, I noticed that he started coming less and less. Now, this guy, he, um, he grew up the son of a bank robber and... At starting as a teenager, it was sort of brought along as an accomplice for these robberies. I don't think it was just banks. I think it was all sorts of things. And at a certain point, he was caught and found guilty, and he was a juvenile and had served time as a juvenile and then gotten out and then married someone, his wife, found out that he had done this, and they, she sort of encouraged him to do it once more with her just for the thrill of it, and they got caught and... He had been shipped off to jail because he had priors. He sort of took the brunt of it and went to jail for a very long time, at which point he found meditation came out, etc. The thing about our lives is that our habitual patterns are really hard to undo. And at a certain point, after I hadn't seen him for a while, I began to wonder, reached out, and I didn't hear back. And there was the same chaplain who wrote to me originally sent me footage of him holding up a gas station. Um, and he had been caught and sent back to jail. And I thought, well... We really let him down. And meditation really let him down. I was really sad about it. It's like this was a seriously lifelong habitual thing that had happened. This urge, this real almost, I mean, to keep talking about addiction to some extent, this almost addiction to go and have this experience. And um, yeah, and it sort of overpowered whatever training he had been doing to undo it. I thought about that for quite some time and I felt bad. I think I was maybe some other podcast or interview or something, it came up and I got an email through this like, there's like a whole request system where you get like notes and then you have to approve it and it was through the prison system. And he wrote to me and he actually said that he had made his peace. He had, he had heard this thing that I'd done. And he you made, heard your podcast yeah, he and had, he emailed you. Yeah, and he, he said, I've, I've really made my peace with being here. Like this, and I have a really potent community of meditation people that I've been training here in the prison system. Yeah. And um, even though he couldn't undo that particular reaction in the outside world, he's he was able to cultivate real peace and is and is now helping others do the same in a really intense environment. So it's sort of a heartbreaking story for me because I wish he wasn't there. And also, I'm so glad that he's doing the work that he's doing. It's really touching to me. Maybe this is his journey. Maybe this, this is where he's it. meant to make the most impactful contribution. It's very possible. And I mean, it really is shining, just turning on a little bit of a flashlight in a very, very dark place. And I, I'm really appreciative that he's doing that work. Mm, what a beautiful story. Thank you all for listening. If you'd like to know more about Lodro, his studio, or his books, check out his website at lodrorinsler.com. I hope you found his story compelling, and we look forward to sharing more inspiring stories on our next episode. 
If you have feedback or suggestions for stories, email us at untangle at gaim.com. And don't forget to check out Gaim's Meditation Studio app in the App Store. See you next time.